and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Tanya Streeter is a British-American world champion freediver who has been inducted into the Women Divers Hall of Fame. On August 17th, 2002, she set the overall record for No Limits Freediving, going to an incredible depth of 525 feet. To this day, she still holds that record in the female classification. She set many records in several disciplines before starting a family and retiring. Since then, she has been featured in several documentaries, TV programs, and has delivered an amazing TED Talk. In 2016, she was featured in the incredibly shocking documentary, A Plastic Ocean, which brings awareness to the problem of microplastics in our oceans. Tanya Streeter, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Casey. Wow, that's quite an introduction. Well, you've had quite a life. (laughs) (laughs) Some days it feels like that, some days not so much, but there we are. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask, what is the more extreme sport, freediving or raising children? (laughs) Uh, Parenting, don't even need to think about that. Parenting, much higher risk, uh, much greater reward. Um, You know, sometimes the scenery when you're freediving can be a little better than poopy diapers, but... uh, um, Probably a little I'm at quieter. A bad stage now, anyway. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes quieter. Except the voices in my head, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I want all of us, you and I, and all the listeners, to just stop for a second, unless you're driving, of course, and take in a deep breath and exhale. Why is that so important? It's like a reset button, isn't it? I mean, I think breath is probably one of the most studied uh, aspects of our, um, I don't know, evolution, daily life. I mean, it's, it's something we share in common with pretty much everything on this planet, um, even if you're just photosynthesizing. Um, I think, I think there's just the calming aspect of of a deep breath that we know physiologically um has benefits to it and then emotionally and mentally uh, like i said it's it's a reset and then if you you can use your breath in different ways uh for for strengthening or advancing yourself in some way then you know this it's it's magical that's this it's like this one almost elixir to to life, taking mm. a deep breath. Yeah, it's crazy. It's something that we can so easily take for granted. And one day we're not going to do it anymore. Yet it's it's always there. It's presence. It's, it's connecting us to that moment and connecting us to each other. I, I really love your description. Tell us, oh, thank you. Tell us a little bit about your history. Um, seems like you were born with gills. <laughs> if I had to guess. No, no. But I was, you know, born in a spot where if you're ever going to develop gills, it's going to happen there. <laughs> and at a day and age, which you know you couldn't replicate it now because. Um, you know, there's so much other stuff going on in the world. But I, I was born in the early 70s in Grand Cayman. And, uh, you know, there was pretty much nothing, nothing to, to do other than, um, you know, marbles, play marbles in the sand and a whole bunch of other fun games that we had, picking fruit and uh, being in the sea. And it didn't matter what direction you looked, if you, you could always see it at some point. It was, it was the way that we navigated uh, to, 
you know, or, or the way that we would describe to, to visitors how you get from somewhere to another place. We were like, oh, just keep the sea on your left and you'll be fine. You'll get there eventually, you know. Um, and for me, uh, being a, a, a child, you know, of, of, of divorce and whatever, um, the sea became this place of uh, safety and security and just my passion and um, escape, uh, but joy and everything. I mean, as a child, I watch my own children. My son is five and my daughter is 12. And they are um, very creative kids. The environment, the school that they go to, we're, we're very low on the media and the technology. Um, and as a result, they look to the natural world for their creativity. And if I look in the back of my car right now, I'm not driving everybody, um, but I see sticks and rocks <laughs> and all kinds of stuff from my five-year-old son and um, all kinds of art stuff all over the floor. My car's actually kind of embarrassing um, from my daughter. The point is that we as little human beings, it's normal for us to see something a stick in a different way than an adult sees a stick, you know, for Charlie, it's a weapon most of the time. Um, but, you know, actually he also kind of strips the bark off, off cedar here and he does his own version of knitting, which is, he calls them knitting trees. I mean, wow. I call them the plague of death because I'm allergic to cedar, but um, yeah. So, so my point is that, yeah, I was a kid who had the sea on my front doorstep by the greatest blessing ever. And, um, that's where I went to take in the natural world. And that's where I fell in love with it. And I think of it as I get older and do more, you know, interesting interviews like this, I realize how, how important that environment is for my soul. I, I knew in the last, you know, decade more <laughs> that two decades, that it was important for my career and for the path my life would take but for my soul, it's huge. And it's also kind of one of the only constants that I had. I, I was born and raised in Grand Cayman. I went to boarding school in England and I specifically chose a school that was in the south of England on the cliffs <laughs> so I could see the sea. Um, and I, I, I mean, I chose it consciously, but I don't think I really understood the power of that choice and the importance of that choice until, you know, now here I am, I live in Austin, Texas, and I can look as hard as I like left and right, and I'm not going <laughs> to see the sea. Um, and it hurts, like it hurts very, very much, very deeply. Um, and I, 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 look, I, I got on Facebook this morning, and one of my girlfriends had posted a picture of the beach in Cayman, and I just wrote back and I was like, "Thanks, I needed that." Um, <laughs> I didn't realize I needed it until I saw it, you know. So that that was it. That was the sea. And the thing about free diving um, is that adaptation is key, and adaptation, by definition, kind of takes a long time. Um, and I didn't realize that by spending my childhood, teen years, basically as any moment I could while I could, in the water, under the water, um, I was adapting my body for, for breath hold, for pressure, for the mammalian dive reflex response um, in a way that somebody who's a 
better free diver today than I'll ever be wasn't doing when they were a child if they didn't have the same kind of exposure to the to the ocean that I did so um I'm not a giver of short answers and I've completely forgotten the question, but yes, the sea is very important. No, that's great. That's perfect. What a beautiful answer. Um, I, I, the ocean is such an interesting dichotomy because if you're on the surface, all kinds of crazy shit can be going down. There could be storms, there could be, you know, waves and whatever. But once you go underneath the surface, there's this like kind of like silence and calmness that must've been, you know, a really, like you said, kind of like a safe feeling for you, a place where you could go and feel peace and calm. Is, is that? A yeah. Good I mean, a hundred percent. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, I think in my, most of my early years it was just exploration and that would be fun because it beats sitting on the beach looking at it let's go see what's underneath the surface and then you know there were definitely times where it was like I just need to go I need to go be in the sea and I remember before going back to boarding school which by the way I did love but the last thing I would do would be go lay on (laughs) your dog not mine (laughs) Um, (laughs) My dog has a much deeper bark. My dog would eat your dog. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I would go lay on the sand and just drink it all in. Just I I would lay on the bottom, just the sand. There's nothing else, no fish, nothing. Just the way that the waves whip up the sand to look like it's been freshly raked. You know, it's just perfect. And I would do that so it would be seared in my memory, you know, to take back to England with me uh, for the cold winter days and, you know, the times when I wasn't going to be able to get in the, the sea for ages it used to drive my mum nuts actually she'd be on the beach she's screaming at me like the plane leaves in an hour get out um <laughs> so that that piece it wasn't just the visual but it was the the feeling just the feeling and wherever i go on vacation or or even just in the water i, I swim here in austin and the lake or at barton springs and i'll just go underwater just to lay there and just to feel it just to feel what it is to be underwater and i think if you're not addicted to it you're never truly going to know what that means but it's very very powerful for me wow that's a very beautiful description when did when did free diving become like part of your career and and part of your competition i guess yeah no until i was in my early 20s um I'd spent my life snorkeling. I'd got scuba certified, but didn't do very much because I, I didn't <laughs> like lugging all the gear and rinsing it off. Um, and so, you know, the snorkeling for me was was where it was at. I, in my early 20s, was married, moved back to, to Grand Cayman and was out with a couple of friends regularly, helping them spot fish and retrieve guns when they spearfished and stuff. And uh, they invited me to go to a freediving clinic. And I was like, what's that? I don't know what that is. And they said, oh, that's what you're doing. You know, you're free diving. And so I went along and that was kind of it. I I was, it just went next level for me. I thought, whoa, I get to push myself in this environment that I love so much. I get to challenge myself. I get to learn about myself. I get to fail here. Like, this is awesome. I'm so safe. And and so that was it. I, I started free diving. I set myself goals. The goals t- turned into world records which i have a love-hate relationship with but Hmm. um it it then provided a career um which you know as you know developed into a film career and you know the fact that i got to have a career that involved that environment that is so 
leveling for me was just huge. I mean, I could regale you stories of really important pivotal moments in my life that happened underwater because they happened underwater, you mm. know? Wow. Interesting. Now, what was the sport of freediving like back then? Um, it was pretty competitive, but small. Um, and also, uh, you know, I can say this now because I have a lot of very good friends who were all sort of washed up now. None of us are competing, but they, they, they would tell me once we became friends that, oh, we didn't even believe you existed. You were just, because keep in mind, freediving was very European. It was, it was Italy, France, Greece, Spain. It was a little bit in the U S. Um, but it was mostly the roots, the, the real buzz, the energy of freediving was Mediterranean. And then I come along as, you know, what, I've been one of my good friends referred to me as the American marketing product. Um, <laughs> you know, I set these records, I beat the men's records and they're like, yeah, no, that, that, that girl cannot do that thing. There's, there's just no way. Um, and so I struggled with that a lot because as a woman, I wanted to be taken seriously as a woman who has a particular look and a particular body. I wanted to be taken seriously for my real work. And, um, you know, I was really in a man's world then. Um, but I'm also super insecure and I just wanted everybody to like me. <laughs> so <laughs> it was hard. Um, and I think I won them over. Um, and it was just really exciting to be involved then. I mean, I was no way, you know, at the birth of this, the competitive sport or anything like that. You know, that's Enzo and Jacques and um, even uh, Pippin and Umberto. And, um, you know, there's, there's others who really, really paved the way, uh, even on this side of the Atlantic, um, before I got there. Um, but it sure was nice to be a part of the next generation, maybe the second or third generation of um, kind of milestone making free divers. Um, it took me around the world. It, I, I met some of the most amazing people. And there's something really special about sharing your passion with a total stranger who, in theory, you're supposed to be competing against. But you actually also want to tell them everything, you know, because it's so exciting and you want to see them succeed and mm. um you know, uh, so I don't think I've ever watched a single, it, it, I was going to say record, but not even record, like performance, like goal performance, whether it's in training or at a competition or a world record attempt where I have not cried in my mask watching that person dive wow. because it's just so huge for me. And um, the knowledge of what it is for them, what you face alone on the rope is huge and that's why i did it i wanted to f to face everything i wanted to do it alone i wanted to do it in the environment where i knew i was safe uh you know not least from myself um and it yeah so for me like i i always hope that that's what other freedivers are taking away from it because that's the only thing that ever mattered to me with my freediving career wow I want to talk about your record setting dive in 2002. When did you make the goal for yourself to set the record, not just for women, but the overall record men or women? When, when did you start to kind of mull that over? 
Aren't you lucky my husband's not in the car right now? Because this was his idea. That was not my idea. (laughs) (laughs) I walked into the office. I was going to train. I was just sticking my head in, because he was my manager then, um, sticking my head in the office to tell him that I was going for a run or something. I don't know, going to the gym. And he's on a sponsor, uh, on a call with a sponsor going, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to go for the world record and no limits. And I looked at him like, wait, what? No, no, no. And I'm like giving them the, the, cut it off signal like hand across the neck no 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 I'm not he goes shut the door go 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 you're good go go train um and I came back and I went why are you telling them I'm gonna do that and he goes because you can because you can and because it's gonna be great um and you know as uh previously referred to insecure girl I do need everybody else to believe in me um it's not enough for me to think I can do it I need other people to think I can do it too and obviously the most important person in the world to me if he thinks I can do it then just try stopping me you know um and so that was it and that was about six months maybe before no no actually I don't know but between three and six months it's almost 20 years ago that's it it. three to six months that's crazy yeah oh yeah 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 um I think before that, if I can remember the order of events, um, so it was 2002, so so 2001, I had done constant weight and um, free immersion the year before, both, I think, to 72 meters, um, and I, as, as my whole raison d'etre, my whole philosophy of life is just challenging yourself, bettering yourself, you know, surprising yourself, redefining your limits, if you will. Um, and so I liked to do a record in one discipline and then jump ship and do another discipline. Um, it was one of the hardest things ever. And people would say to me, oh, what's your what's your favorite discipline? And my answer is always the same. It depends what I'm training for at the time. Hmm. That's my favorite. So, you know, when I'm on the sled going hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet deep, the idea of kicking 200 feet is just like exhausting and appalling and I don't want to do constant weight. Um, But then when I'm training for constant weight and I'm thinning down, you know, 200 plus feet, the idea of getting on a sled and trusting equipment and everything uh, to go so much deeper um, is terrifying. And so, yeah, I, I, it, it just sort of, it just sort of, depended so I I think what would have happened is I would have done those two you know self-propelled disciplines I would have had sponsors and contracts and planning the year and said okay this year we're going to do no limits and um, I believe that Mandy Ray Cruikshank had the no limits record at the time I had done 113 meters in 1998 um, and I think and this again my brain is dead but uh, I think that the maybe it was around it wasn't more than 135 meters I don't think wow. it, uh, but and I know the men's was a hundred and 54 because Loic had done 154 yeah Um, and so I think Paul had just casually rounded it up to 160 because he wasn't the one doing it (laughs) (laughs) he sounded like a fantastic number and he pulled it out of a hat and said that's what I was going to do and um I mean, that all sounds very irresponsible, but you have to understand that the training and the thought and the team of people that went behind it, um, you know, 
was was the best of the best of the best. Wow. So e- even though in terms of the training, it was a little bit of making it up as I go along, because that's the, the era that we lived in with freediving. Um, but I was very, very, very conservative in my training when it came to the diving. My The way that I worked things is, is for six weeks, I think, you know, I would do what I refer to as um, kind of strength training, like strengthening my cardiovascular system with aerobic and anaerobic workouts, and then strengthening my you know, the physical muscles I would be using for whatever discipline I was diving in. Um, and then I would break it down to the next block, which would be more conditioning work, which I would look at now conditioning those muscles again to working without oxygen. So instead of lifting heavy weights and breathing, I was lifting much lighter weights and not breathing. I was doing more static. I was doing more dynamic. Um, and then that six-week block, and then I would lead into the next six-week block, which would be diving, the actual diving part. Um, and there was, that was my very, very basic approach to um, training. And then I dived every every other day. I never dived every day. I never did more than one deep dive a day. And by deep, for me, that meant um, with the sled. I I I mean, I just did. I I did a couple pull downs to twenty meters or so, and then got on the sled and did my goal dive. I think I started at eighty meters for my first, and then progressed in pretty small increments. I mean, in the beginning, it was maybe 10 meters at a time, but then it got down to sort of between five, two and five meters as I progressed. And as I say, every other day and only one dive a day. Good call. So, Good call. <laughs> so on August 17th, 2002, you have your buddies all in place. You said you take your safety very, very seriously and you're really conservative. You've been training for this event. So describe what it's like that morning. You're in the water, you're, you're preparing for this dive your people are in place, uh, what happens? You know, the voices in my head. I've, if you've read anything about me, my constant reference to the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, you know, devil, you didn't sleep well enough, you didn't eat well enough, you haven't trained hard enough, you're too tired. Because what happens is a couple of weeks before the record, I, I do the record depth in training to sort of have it in the bag. And that's when we all celebrate. That's when it really kind of counts for me it's all very tarnished once the media and the sponsors show up unfortunately but Mm. but you got to do what you got to do and so it's a lot of just added pressure and the other thing is for me is I'm a bucket of nerves um and I have a hard time eating and so I do my window of peak performance is never on record day or performance day it's always like two weeks beforehand uh so it was kind of rough I was on a I was in Turks and Caicos um and on um on the club med dive boat or catamaran actually it was uh and so the waves were a little rough and they were just being made worse by coming through that twin hull and i was on my sled it was kind of knocking me around a little bit um and in my head you know the devil saying all of what the devil says and the angel is saying you know what in five minutes this is all going to be over so do it um and um we do this breathing technique it's 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 not hyperventilation in the sense that everybody will immediately think it's deep rather than rapid breathing. Basically, saturating your blood with as much oxygen, your blood, your tissues, everything with as much oxygen as possible because you're going to need that to metabolize during the whatever three and a half minutes that this dive is going to take me. Um, 
And during that process, the last 10 minutes, at, at different intervals, my divers begin to descend. It's all very, very emotional for me. I'm a team player. Um, and it's like the, the, the greatest travesty of it all is that one person gets a world record. There should be about another 20 names listed after mine because my whole team, uh, you know, I, I can't do it without them. Long story longer. Um, anyway, T minus seven minutes, my deepest divers go. They're unbelievably qualified, just experience the best of the best. They're going to go down to 500 feet and they've got a you know seven minute window down there and the dive that takes me three and a half minutes can take them three and a half hours because of all the deco they're at much greater risk than i am i'm the only wow. person getting into the water on record day that is not expected to risk my life for somebody else and so let that just settle for a minute so do i do i feel like i need to do my best when that they're doing their best for me yes so uh, yeah um they go at T minus seven, the next pair go at T minus five, the next pair, you know, T minus three, T minus whatever. There's 18 people in the water. And then at T minus two minutes, open my eyes. I'm on my sled. I'm doing my deep breathing. It's just me and my husband. It's like deathly quiet, apart from, the, you know, my mom's gentle sobs in the background, I think. <laughs> um, actually, my mom wasn't crying. There was a journalist that was crying. Um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> wow. And... There's uh, the judges right next to me doing my deep breathing. And then in the last, so reference now to my divers, they have a limited amount of time at the depth for which they're at before they are at risk, which means that I have to go when at zero I have with, I have under the rules, I have 30 seconds. Um, and I like to go as close to zero as possible because otherwise I'm exposing them to unnecessary risk. Right. Mm. Um, so sometime in the last minute, I begin what we call, Packing, and the idea is that the last breath that I take is volume. I've already dealt with oxygen concentration because I've done all that long, slow inhaling, exhaling to saturate my oxygen with tissue and to remove CO2, which is the gas that gives you the urge to breathe. I want to get rid of that one. And now the last breath is really like, and that those last sips, that's, that's what we call packing. Mm. Um, and it's basically, you can't use your muscles, your abdominal muscles, your intercostal muscles anymore. So you use kind of a sucking technique with your mouth to pack more volume of air into your lungs. Now, don't do that at home. It's not safe. You should no, you, you don't even need it. If you're going 200 feet deep, you don't need to do it. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a super advanced thing. Um, the risk is that you create enough intrathoracic pressure that you inhibit the heart from beating properly. So when your heart beats properly, it sends oxygen everywhere it needs to go, especially, you know, vital organs, your brain, and it beats boom, 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 boom. If there's too much pressure on it and there's a there's a disease of the lining of the heart that that swells and it, it kind of emulates the same thing, which pressurizes the heart, it, it inhibits it from beating and it's kind of and it's just not sending blood to your brain. So you see where I'm going with this. I take my last breath, I'm packing, I hear zero, I do a little bit more packing, and then I black out. My head knocks forward on the sled i knock my nose clip off a little bit Ugh. and i pass out and it's a very very transient very quick loss of consciousness you know when you think about somebody if, if somebody walking past my car right now suddenly 
fell to the ground unconscious, it is more than likely not because they were holding their breath or because they overpacked. It's because of another health issue, right? So when a freediver talks about blacking out, it's because we're pushing to the extreme of our abilities and we've prepared for it. Um, your average person blacking out, that's cause for alarm, right? So mm. I, I'm, I don't mean to sound flippant about it because obviously in the wrong situation, it's very dangerous, but this is the quote unquote right situation. I blacked out. Immediately what happens is you exhale because the body is incredible at self-protection, right? So you exhale, which relieves the pressure on the heart, which allows the heart to beat properly. You know, one beat, boom, you got blood to the brain, you wake up. And if you watch videos of, of this, and there's an excellent documentary that I made with ESPN, um, where this dive is featured, you can see it's very, very brief. I mean, a few seconds, I don't know, maybe three, five, I, I, I don't know, but very quick. I, I lift up my head, I look at my husband, I tell him I overpacked, I start putting my nose clip on, I look at the judge, I tell him, can I go? And he is just like thinking, going over the rules in his head, and he realizes that, yes, I under the rules, I can go. I take a great breath because the countdown is now at 20. I give the signal for my husband, he pulls the string on the sled the sled drops and i think you know expletive not a good start wow. um and i think in, in, in the film there's this top side footage of my husband like slapping the water and cursing because yeah not a good start at all and immediately the devil gets super loud in my head and he's like really that's how you're going to start a world record dive like no 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 no, no. you don't have a hundred percent of your lung volume you know you don't you don't have your your stress. You don't know what happens to your body at 525 feet. You definitely don't know what happens to your body at 525 feet after you just blacked out. Like you know, who do you think you are? Step aside. You know all the stuff. So what about the and angel? Like the, at what point does uh, the angel, angel is like yeah? Angel. Like listen to the devil. This guy's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, the angel is. I was about to say the angel is me, but that would make me sound like a total jerk. The angel is the best version of myself, which I very rarely am. But the angel just says, you know what? Everybody else is doing their best here. You have no right to do anything less than try your best. And that, wow. I mean, it makes me very emotional to say it because, um, because I wish I was more like that all the time. Um, but that was it. I just kept all the crap that I spew at other people, like, oh, is your, you know, your brain, is it going to be your mind going to be your weapon or your weakness, Tanya? Like, that's going through my head. And one of my other favorites is, oh, if it's not something physical stopping you, then it's just mental. And you, again, you're going to overcome that. Are you going to give into that? And freediving is about self-integrity. And that's a whole other podcast. It's about self-integrity. It's about can you handle living up to the truth? when nobody's looking or are you just going to lie and nobody ever knows and they still, and they still think you're pretty incredible, right? Well, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I'm a little crazy for the truth. So I was like, I'm just going to try, I'm just going to try see how hard I can, far I can go. Like, you know, I'm just going to whatever. So I get to maybe 80 meters and I'm already having trouble equalizing, which is ridiculous because I have a long way to go I'm halfway there. Right. And normally I don't have 
I wouldn't have trouble equalizing until well over 100 meters. Um, I stopped the sled at about 110, and I know this because my two divers were there, and I can't see them, but I can hear them, and they sound like Mickey Mouse because they're on a helium mix. Mm. And they're like, go down here, go down here. And I've stopped the sled, and I'm moving my head around. I take my nose clip off trying to equalize, and I'm just, you know, one ear squeaks a little, the other ear maybe equalizes. I don't even know. And I just release the brake, and I inch, almost literally inch towards... 525 feet and um it's super dark it's pitch black I, I clunk into the into the weight it's audible there's a bright light shining on my face which obviously contributes to the to the blindness as well but generally it's, it's just super dark and there's three things that you have to do at the bottom of the rope and i had done them a bunch of times uh, on every training dive but also i rehearsed on land i'd have them mount my sled on land and stand on the sled and blindfold myself and one two three one hand on the lift bag because that's my ride back up two open up the, the tank in the in the lift bag because that's putting air in to make it expand and start pulling me up and three pull the pin that releases that lift bag portion of the sled from the weight so that it can go because there's like I don't know, 80 kilos of something of weight in my sled. There's there's no getting that back up uh, 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 without a whole bunch of lift bags. So you have to do that. So I did one, put my hand on the bar, you know, that I, that I hold on to. Two, opened up the valve. Now, I knew two things. I knew that I was going to be the first person down there. And I knew that I would never go back there again. I, in my mind, I was already thinking about retiring. I, you know, I wasn't going to do another no limits, whatever. It's just so I wanted to blow a kiss to the sea because, as you know, you know, it's my big love and I owe it everything. And I, oh, you hear me getting emotional? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, I can never do it without it. Hold on. Okay. So I just wanted to take a second and look around. I wanted to blow a kiss to the sea, as girly and dumb as that sounds. And I just, I just wanted a moment alone. I always said that freediving was an exercise in traveling to the absolute edge of myself and looking back and being okay with it all. Um, and I wanted to be able to do that, to pay homage, to to accept that version of myself. Um, anyway, the narcosis started to set in. So nitrogen narcosis is very real. Um, nitrogen has a narcotic effect. It's used in ORs to help you sleep. Um, it's uh, it dissolves in your bloodstream. It's 80% of the air we breathe. Therefore, 80% of all that breathing that I had done, I'd not only saturated my tissues with oxygen, but also nitrogen. I had a lot of nitrogen in my system. Now, when you pressurize nitrogen, it you know it basically is super concentrated in your in your blood, and it has that narcotic effect. So for me. <laughs> not being a drug user that feels like a glass of wine on an empty stomach at the bottom of the road not thinking straight so i do my three steps my my hand on the thing crank the lift bag blow a kiss one two three and i'm just waiting like okay why aren't we moving <laughs> and the tunnel vision starts uh i start to lose hearing 
I can't focus and I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute, one, two, three, I did three steps. And I'm like, okay, well, there was this one time where my sled, my first sled kind of stuck a little. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wiggling it thinking, okay, not stuck. So I'm sort of thinking straight, but I've entirely lost the plot, right? Um, and then I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to give it a boost. I'm, I'm going to pull my fins out of the fin bin and I'm going to, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to push 90 kilos back to the surface. Wow. And I'm like, not not going to happen. And in the meantime, I can also hear my safety diver descending. He was at, at um, a little less than 500, 480, I think, but within sight of me. And the idea was that he was to drop while I was at the bottom um, a little, you know, maybe down to 500 and then come. But I can hear him coming closer than that, coming behind me. And then and I just, so I know that I'm safe. I'm, I'm, I know that I'm safe because he's, well, got safety equipment, gloss over that, but got a lot of ways to get me back to the surface. Granted, possibly unconscious, but more, but more than likely totally fine. And even if I was unconscious, would still be totally fine because it would, it would be within a minute or so. Right. So totally fine. Can't stress that enough. Um, but I finally just relax sort of thinking, okay, well, I guess I'm going to let him do his thing. Um, and then I have this one thought that is like a door being slammed in my face or, or retrospectively kind of like the lights being turned on or something. I just think to myself, this is going to be sad. Like I, I had this overwhelming feeling that it's just going to be really sad seeing me return to the surface this wow. way. Uh, and I did not mean dead because I didn't believe that was a possibility. I didn't fear that. Um, I just thought of my husband and my mom and the crying journalists and my amazing team and these wonderful spectators who are just going to be like, oh, dang, you know, shouldn't make it. Um, and, and it was like the door just got slammed in my face. And I was like, oh, my God, pull the pin, Blondie. Literally, that was my next thought. Um, and so I did. Um, and there was so much air in the lift bag at that point that it, it, it started moving a lot faster than I like. You know, I like to be underwater. I like for things to take their time. It doesn't bother me to spend time at depth. It feels kinder on the body to return through those atmospheres of pressure slower rather than quicker. Um, but because I put so much air in the lift bag, it started moving quite quickly. I gripped, gripped on really hard and then relaxed um, with everything but my hands because I could relax. You know, my job was done. I was on my way back to the surface. But that act of relaxing is also like maybe after the second glass of wine and you fall back on your bed, you close your eyes and the room starts spinning. I am not wow. an alcoholic, but I am familiar with this sensation. <laughs> and so what happened is that, you know, I just lost my hearing. I lost my vision. It was like the static on the TV. And so I decided to bite down on my tongue as hard as I possibly could because my whole body was going numb and I wanted to feel something. Um, and even, wow. even then I lost that. There's, there's a, a solid 150, if not 200 feet, of the return journey to the surface that I have no recollection of. Um, and then I get into where it's light and I can, I always was able to engage the depth. You know, you just become familiar with the light and what it's like at what depths and stuff. So I knew that I was approaching some divers and I kind of waved my fists and gave them a thumbs up um, like a fool. And then I know that my husband normally needs, meets me between sort of 60 and 80 feet. And I like to release myself. I had an extra safety device where I'm 
um, linked to the rope above the sled. So I can't be pulled down, but I can be pushed up, right? Um, and I have to release that myself manually. I have to reach behind me and, and release this up, but I need tension on the line to do that. But I was holding the lift bag too hard that I couldn't get the tension on the line because I was all out of sorts. And normally I release it at about 100 feet and then meet my husband about 70 feet and we swim up together we have a moment where i give him a wink and a smile and tell him i did it and he blows a kiss or whatever and we you know (laughs) our journey is done and we're ready to share it with the world and i go back to the surface well that didn't happen because i went past him like a rocket um to this day he says he couldn't see my fins in the like comet like situation he watches this, the lift bag go up and then he looks back down again and my heart breaks when I watch that portion of the video because it must be terrifying for him thinking where's my wife oh for you sure. know I don't for sure. I don't see her she had this terrible start am I getting her back like it just the things I put people through I apologize regularly to <laughs> the people that love me for putting them through all of this wow. um and I released this sled about oh gosh maybe the lift bag about 15, 20 feet from the surface and popped up like a cork. Um, and yeah. And then my husband came back up again um, and he looked at me and he said, did you do it? And I said, yeah. Um, and he's hooping and hollering, but we can't touch each other because I have to wait for a white white card from the judge, uh, which is because if if I lose consciousness, obviously I don't get the world record. And if you are going to lose consciousness on a free dive, it's typically going to happen near or at the surface because you've just overexerted, you've 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 crossed the line of hypoxia, and you, you, your body is just saying stop moving. You know you got you got to just breathe, right? So, um, so I surface, I breathe, but I'm not actually tired because no limits free diving. You don't actually metabolize that much oxygen and put a lot of CO2 into your system. I'm just relieved at this point, and I get the white card, and I hug my husband, and I whisper in his ear, "I'm never doing that again," <laughs> um, and. On the boat, we, with the judges, we watched the footage of the bottom camera because that's all part of the ratification of the world record for them, um, pending then a drug test, a doping test. But just in the initial instance, they have to see all the footage. And we watched it. Um, and the four of us, I, I, I was good friends with them uh, before, during, after. Um, and they had seen what a terrible start they had waited longer. Their dive was not supposed to take that long. They all were biting their tongues, lips, whatever, waiting for me. It must have been terrifying for wow. everybody. And we all just sort of universally decided that we did not need to talk about what happened at the bottom of the rope. Wow. Um, and it actually took me 10 years. It took me 10 years. Um, the TED Talk was the first time I ever talked about it publicly. Um, to be quite honest, it was the first time I ever talked about it outside of just me and my husband. Um and it was very hard for me to do that TED talk. Um, and that is obviously because um, six weeks later, Audrey Mestre lost her life attempting to beat that world record. And to be perfectly honest with you, she lost her life in a way that was potentially very familiar to the experience that I had had at the bottom of the rope. So that rocked my world. and set into motion uh, a still constant battle of reconciling that dive with everything else above the surface of the water. You know, it was a, it was a very, very tough thing to be a part of. 
Well, that that is something I wanted to mention and bring up. You could have just rode off into the sunset. You could have held your record. You you are you've already mentioned you didn't really love you know talking to media or anything, but you didn't do that. You decided that speaking about it was going to be important. You worked on your public speaking. And then that all culminated in 2012 with that TED Talk, which is incredible. We're going to link that in the show notes. And most TED Talks, like people are quiet. This, everybody's like glued in. You could absolutely hear a pin drop in, in that building as you were doing it. And you tell this story that's super emotional, that makes you very vulnerable. And, and you decided to take that on for a very specific reason. And I have so much respect for that. I think that is very much underplayed in your story. Oh, well, thank you. You know, this weird platform that I find myself on, you know, the obvious angle was Ocean Advocate. So, so yes, after, after Audrey died, I decided to go back and set that variable weight world record that I talked about. Getting on the sled, not as deep because it wasn't another No Limits, but I really, 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 really wanted to do another sled dive to show that this can be done safely. So that was sort of my homage to her, if you like. And to the sport, my responsibility as as you know one of the one of the bigger names in the sport back then, and then with the with the TED talk, you know, TED was an amazing platform. When I was approached to do it, I said, "What is TED?" <laughs> they were like, "Oh, you're the only person on the planet that doesn't know about TED," because I was. I um, and I actually said no initially because I was like, Psh, 15 minutes, I don't do that." <laughs> um, but. Um, for free? What? Anyway, it was amazing. Like just the process of doing it, because of course I chose this very difficult thing to talk about for me. And I am a person who values authenticity above almost everything else. Authenticity in relationships, authenticity in the way I portray myself. And I knew that if I was going to go on being a public person of any kind, that that story had to be told. Um, and I had to be brave enough to tell it because it was important. Um, not important just because it's engaging, but important because somebody else's life was lost uh, because the same safety was not put in place. Um, I felt it was important for the sport, which I'm very protective of, and the other athletes that I'm very protective of, um, but also for just our human nature, for 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 just sort of my own humanity. I felt that it was just too important of a story not to tell, um, and it had also sort of all come about around the time where the Plastic Oceans Foundation had invited me to get on board with them. And I felt like I had finally ended a really important part of my journey through life in that I had come full circle. I used to sit on the front of the boat going out to training dives, talking to the sea, not like a offering or a prayer or anything, just like a conversation between good friends. Like, Hey man, can you watch my back while I do this? Cause I really want to do this wow. and I'll pay you back. I got your back. Going to cry again. Sorry. Oh, I love it. Um, <laughs> so ridiculous. There are people looking at me. Um, <laughs> and so, and I, I kind of always said, you know, I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. Um, and 
Good Lord, Tanya. Um, so the Plastic Oceans Foundation came along and it was like, this is it. I had been involved with charitable organizations uh, for protecting the sea and for whale and dolphin conservation. One of my favorites, like a Reef Alliance, one of my favorites. I just loved all of these things, reef cleanups, waterways, all of this stuff. But somehow plastic to me was, it was the one. I realized like I was the little girl who would be, you know, on the surface of the water on a, they weren't paddle boards back then, but on a board, um, well, goofing around and see a cup on the bottom of the sea and be like, hold on a minute, guys, I got to just go get that. And my friends would be like, what? You can do what now? Wow. And I swim down and pick it up because I remember times when it wasn't there and now you can't escape it. And that's part of my, in my lifetime that's happened. So I thought, well, shoot, if I'm going to do nothing else with this platform, it's going to be that. I'm, I'm going to be part of this quote unquote wave of change. I should say that dates me, quote unquote, I should say hashtag wave of change <laughs> um, that, that, that is going to start quote unquote hashtag turning the tide on plastic because that's what needs to happen and look i was by no means at the bottom of this movement but i was again grouped with an amazing uh group of of, of people who were way more knowledgeable more educated um equally passionate as I am to, to start this. And there's been nothing more gratifying than watching in the last decade how this has become something that we would talk about and be kind of sent away like, yeah, yeah, we got way bigger issues to now people like Attenborough saying, you know, this is the biggest issue of our age, plastic yeah. pollution. Wow. Um, and so I've, I felt like I'd come full circle then and now standing back and watching other way more educated, innovative, uh, better placed, famous uh, people taking the reins and doing good with it. It just feels good. You know, I don't, I never did have a desire to be in the public eye. It's something that has been a struggle for me, but it's all part of my growth <laughs> and acceptance. Um, so it's really nice for me to look back and watch how, other people who are just stronger individuals run with it and do it and do good and, you know, turn it all around because my kids are going to do it and their kids yep. are hopefully going to see the, the benefits of it. Wow. Yeah. We just, um, we watched the documentary again last night and it's been the second or third time that I've seen it. And every time it's so hard to watch, but it's so important and really helps me understand the things that I can do personally to help with the problem and figure out the plastic situation, because it is, again, it's very hard to watch. And I'm so grateful that you were a part of that. And you did that. I want to, I want to kind of close. I want to kind of close with, I mean, it, this is just an experience that I had this morning. Um, I was on the ice at my lo local ice rink, just kind of practicing hockey. You know, I'm, I can't play because of the virus. And so um, they do open it up just to kind of practice. And there was, a little kid must've been, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And you could see it was probably his father coach with him. And the kid was just starting out, just learning. And he would fall <laughs> and be like face down for a minute. And then it would take him a second and get back up and then he'd fall again. And he could, you could see he would get discouraged, but he would stand up every single time and keep trying and keep working. And I just, I, I thought of, you know, him and I thought of you and how, amazing it is not just to have an accomplishment that that you 
the, you know, you did, but to also understand all the failures and all the struggles and then to be really real and open and like you said, authentic about it, I think is such a gift. And I, I really appreciate that in you. Can you, can you tell us one simple thing that you would like us to walk away from this conversation with one thing that you've learned that can help any of us in our day-to-day lives? Yes. The, I mentioned it briefly earlier. Um, the, the sort of ethos or catchphrase of my competitive career was to redefine your limits. The idea being that we all absolutely have limits. I have limits to my patients some days. I have limits to how many down dogs I can do some days. I have limits to how deep I could dive way back then. But if you, if you don't try to push them, if you don't just take the proverbial deep breath and just try to push that limit a little, you, you won't know where your limits truly are. You have them. But you learn and you grow when you redefine them. I have never learned anything from success, ever. Success has never taught me anything. Failure has taught me everything. So redefine your limits. The worst thing that can happen is that you fail and you learn. That's amazing. I absolutely love that. Tanya Streeter, this has been such an amazing conversation. I've loved following your work over the years. Where would you like to send people who want to learn a little bit more about you or about the oceans? Um, what resources should we give to people? Oh, gosh. Um, well, my first would, would be um, Plastic Oceans UK. Um, and if you will allow me, Casey, if you don't have it, I'll send you the correct link because there's there's a, a we're actually in the process of rebranding. That will soon change. So oh, cool. I'll, I'll, I'll keep in touch with you on that. But that's that's one of them. Uh, you know, I'm, I can be found at Tanya Streeter on on social media. I'm horrible at social media, um, but I can be found there. And listen, Casey, thank you. Thanks for persisting. I know that I'm tough to pin down, but it's been a fun hour in my car chatting with you. No, it's absolutely our pleasure. It's been amazing to talk to you. Like I said, your your story is it, it's amazing. It's a it's a tale of of an crazy accomplishment and a really cool feat but more than that again it's the authenticity it's the it's the never giving up it's the mindset we just we find so inspiring so thank you so much for all of that and for your time today and for your work with um the plastic ocean it's really amazing stuff thank you very much thanks thank you absolutely and this has been another episode of boundless body radio